Alright, hey everybody, it's James Lindsay, you're listening to the New Discourses Podcast. And this is, uh, I mean, normally my episodes are all explanatory of something, um, try to take you on a deep dive into some aspect of something relevant to the woke movement and literature. Today, I'm actually going to kind of do a side a diversion podcast to explain something new I'm doing here at New Discourses. Uh, in particular, I'm kind of venturing into, I don't know how far I'm going to go into this, I'm kind of venturing into, um, sort of by accident, as a matter of fact, book publishing with a New Discourses imprint, or at least I'm about to publish not one, but two books uh, with a new discourses imprint, at least as a beginning for this. And so the first of these, I know a lot of you are anticipating my my own forthcoming book that I wrote, which I think I'm going to title Race Marxism, which is nearly done. And I will self-publish that through new discourses, uh, in, in, uh, an imprint of new discourses. So that'll be coming hopefully within a month or two. But I'm excited actually to bring to you guys uh, another book that somebody reached out to me earlier in the year, sometime this spring, with uh, a, a kind of a guide, a field manual, as a matter of fact, is what we're calling it, called Counter Wokecraft. And so this is a book written by a fairly insightful academic in STEM by the name of Charles Pincourt, and we're, ty- or we're going to release this book uh, fairly soon on New Discourses. Um, probably by the time you're listening to this, it will have already come out. Uh, so you'll be able to go to Amazon and purchase that because that's how we are self-publishing it. And so the book is called Counter Woke Craft, a field manual for combating the woke in the university and beyond. Now, the, the names on this book, to be clear, are Charles Pincourt and James Lindsay, uh, more specifically Charles Pincourt with James Lindsay. And I, I want to hasten to point out kind of the story behind this book before I kind of detail what it's about and why you definitely want to be interested in it. Um, I did not write this book. And so what happened is that Charles wrote this book based very heavily off of A, work that I have done on new discourses, but more importantly, B, work that I've done on cynical theories. Uh, with Helen Pluckrose. And in fact, the beginning of the book, as I'll discuss momentarily, expands upon some of what we lay out as a basic framework in cynical theories. So that that works. And then when Charles presented it to me uh, and said, what do you think? What can we do with this? Can you promote? I think he just wanted me to kind of promote it, right? Very modest guy. Uh, And I said, you know, are you willing to try to maybe publish this? And if we publish this as a new discourses book, would you be interested in that? Um, And he was, he was, happy about that. And again, very modest. His his goal was whatever you, I remember him saying, literally, whatever you think will get it to reach the widest audience and help the most people. So, you know, he's coming from the right place. And um, he handed this to me and I read it and, you know, it's only about a hundred pages or so, just a little over. And it's short. It's a quick read. It takes a few hours tops. And it's, just really, I was really impressed with this idea. And most importantly, and this is what I want to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it through the context of the book to kind of get you interested in seeing why you would want to have it. Um, the concept of woke craft itself was an, I think is an important and enlightening idea. And so 
I offered him, I read it through the manuscript and I offered him a ton of suggestions for things he might do to beef it up or whatever if he wanted to. Um, it was all take it or leave it. I don't care. Uh, is kind of what I said, but I said, you can strengthen this here and there's a tangential here and here's a point here and this would be good there. And I really like what you did here. Did you consider adding this there? And so after working with that kind of list of suggestions, as many of which, you know, I spelled out in some you know, paragraphs worth of detail, or at least a paragraph worth of detail each. Uh, poor, it was in his Twitter DM, actually a poor guy had to read an unbelievable wall of text in a Twitter DM uh, environment, which is kind of funny. After going through this with him, we decided that we would put both of our names on the cover because um, if I recall the way he phrased it, you know, basically he leaned on my work or cites my work on nearly all pages. But I want to make it very clear for everybody that I didn't write this book, but I did, I guess, in that sense, intellectually contribute to it, um, unless there be any mistake, uh, since my name is on the cover and on the copyright. But I can't recommend this book highly enough. Uh, let me just kind of Start. I'm just going to kind of go through the table of contents because obviously I'm not going to read the book to you um, yet, uh, ever maybe. It's, you know, under the typical contractual embargoes, so it's not my place to do that. But Counter Woke Craft, a field manual for combating the woke in the university and beyond. Start with the title. So there's a lot here, believe it or not. The idea of woke craft itself is central. And by the way, full disclosure also, I wrote the foreword to this book. And that's what I wanted to focus on was the idea of woke craft. You have, and you have to think of the woke movement, like we read in Critical Race Theory and Introduction, for example, where it says, unlike most scholarly endeavors, and this is a paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, you know, Critical Race Theory contains an activist dimension, and then they paraphrase Marx, and this is the second paragraph of that book on page three, if you want to look it up, but um, paraphrase Marx and say that it's not satisfactory to understand the world, you have to want to change it. So there's an activist dimension to all of these critical theories, whether it's critical uh, theory in the old school sense, or whether it's this new identity politics based identity Marxism, as I call it now, sense that we would identify broadly as woke. Um, there's an activist dimension and therefore there's activist strategy that gets applied and it gets applied in the domains in which it, it works, which is maybe it's interpersonal, maybe it's institutional, maybe it's cultural, but in particular in this book, the focus is on the way that it works in particular types of highly bureaucratic institutional settings. So this is woke craft in the university and beyond. And um, everything that has a pretty strongly bureaucratic structure, uh, when we say and beyond in the title, this would apply to. So it'll apply at least in limited measure in corporate environments. It will apply at least in limited measure to churches and ministry environments. Anything institutional that has some level of bureaucratic structure uh, gets kind of infiltrated by similar patterns. And that set of patterns for their activism is woke craft. And Charles identifying woke craft and the parallel here is to like spy craft um, is really a brilliant stroke. It's very important, I think, to realize that this is a very strategic, as dumb as it looks, it's a, it's a very dumb theory with a very um, clever, actually, an insidious strategy behind it to insinuate itself into things, in particular institutions. It's bureaucratic structures and institutions that, that use them are very susceptible 
to wokecraft. And so learning to think in the terms of the activism, not just in terms of the theory, is something you know I'm not particularly great at. I've, I've done some podcasts talking about various things and how to respond to them. The Martin Bailey strategy, for example, is one of them. Talked about the virus metaphor and how it conquers uh, entities that way. I did a podcast talking about how it moves into an academic department and then field at some point a while back. Uh, anything that has this bureaucratic structure, though, is susceptible to particularly susceptible to wokecraft. And so learning to identify woke ideology, but also the activist praxis that goes with that, the woke craft that makes it go, that gets it installed at a bureaucratic level, which is often the blind spot for academics in universities, is incredibly important if you want to be able to counter woke craft. And I say that with um, no hesitation. Academics, and I've, I did a podcast about this too, and I yelled about the good liberals, the truth is that a lot of academics get tangled up and the, the woke craft depends on this happening. A lot of academics get tangled up in arguing and haggling about the ideas as though they are just ideas. But with something where theory and praxis, as it's phrased, are wedded, in other words, in a Marxian theory, the ideas aren't just ideas. The ideas are, are political tools that have a strategy behind them. And those political tools are being used to implement the ideology. And one of the tools that it uses to do this is to get good liberal people, but especially academics, arguing about the ideas as though they're just ideas to so they will ignore the implementation or not realize that the implementation is the actual point. And so this field manual for combating the woke in the university and beyond, counter woke craft, I think is an indispensable piece, especially for people in bureaucratic settings, but especially, especially academics and university settings to understand that what they're facing is, in fact, a very activist movement that depends on them not understanding that, that depends on them treating it as though it's just ideas that are being haggled over in a very academic sense. And the more dressed up in academic language and specialist terminology, et cetera, that it is, the more likely you are to snare academics, in my opinion, into arguing about these things as though they're merely ideas and ignoring that praxis is there underneath the theory. And in fact, that they are literally the phrases wedded together. They are married to one another. There's no such thing as one without the other. The, you know, the metaphor or the institution of marriage is that two are two individuals are to become one body. Uh, if we go back to kind of the theological understanding of marriage. And so here praxis, the putting the, pra the theory into practice and then using what happens with the practice to then reinform the theory in a reflexive loop is necessary in one of these woke theories or a Marxian theory more generally. And so this book, I think, is going to be an indispensable tool for academics who are not so much just the ones who are asleep at the wheel and not realizing what's going on around them, although they're very important. I think also uh, it's going to be very important for academics who are awake and realize there's a problem but don't have the slightest idea what to do, how to, how to do anything about this, not even what to do, how to do it, um, because they don't recognize the different kinds and, and the language in this book is very good, the different kinds of incursions that are being made in their institutional setting around them, which will slowly and eventually conquer departments um, or entire colleges or uh, the university itself. And so the book is actually, like I said, it's short. 
it's I forget because we're fiddling around with the page page numbers because of the margins in our final kind of you know, uh, typesetting run here, but it's somewhere in the vicinity of about 110 pages on pretty small pages. So when, when you start doing the, the math, I think you can read through this whole book comfortably in about two hours. Uh, it's a good read on an airplane. I actually read it on an airplane recently. Um, again, and it, it's a good read on an airplane. Uh, if you have a flight somewhere, you know, kind of a regional flight or whatever, I know I have to think in terms of these things, I fly so much now, but, uh, you know, a nice afternoon read also, and it's never heavy. I think that's very important to point out. This book is it's like cynical theories is blatantly heavy. Even I, I don't think the new young adult version that's coming out, which by the way, is going to be called social injustice. You can pre-order that now if you want. Uh, same little trick with the title looks like a editor's mark on the cover. It's not yellow, but blue and has a, as justice, the statue of justice on the cover, wearing the iconic uh, rainbow aviators from cynical theories. But um, unlike Cyn cynical theories is a very heavy read and even the, uh, the, the more digestible adaptation is social injustice is still a fairly heavy read. This book is not a heavy read. Um, I don't want to come it could, because it's a field manual. It's a very different feel. I mean, not everybody will have read this or even appreciate this reference, but it's in, in some sense, you know, in the, the readability and uh, length, very similar to Sam Harris's kind of iconic uh, letter to a Christian nation. Uh, just to give you, again, that's readability and length that I'm talking about here, not content. Um, subject matter is obviously very different. So for those of you who have read it, you know what, what you're getting into. It's, it's a comfortable two, two and a half hour read. Uh, if you read, I actually read, surprisingly, I read fairly slowly um, for people. <laughs> in general. So, um, it, it, I can't encourage you enough to like take this up, especially if you're working in a university or if you're around a bureaucratic structure in government or corporation, but it's broken into three chapters. It's just three short chapters. There's, I have a little forward. It's just a couple pages or a few pages. It's a little bit of an introduction. It's also very short to kind of tell you what the book's about. And then it just dives right in. Uh, chapter one is titled Understanding Woke. So it lays out the ideas of the ideology. Chapter two is titled Woke Craft. So it details what woke craft is so that you can learn to identify it. And chapter three is Counter Woke Craft. So you can learn what to do about it. It's very straightforward. What are we looking at? How does it work? What can you do about it? And, um, Charles, being a STEM guy, has put this uh, book in a uh, it, it, STEM people immediately understand. They will recognize immediately, in fact, that it was typeset in LaTeX. Uh, if you don't know what that means, it doesn't matter. But uh, so you those people who do know what it means, on the other hand, will realize that, you know, it's extremely sectionated. If that is that a word sectionated, you know, it's like chapter one, section 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, very much like a field manual would be, or old school. Another idea would be like a textbook, you know, then we get into kind of more details, section one, 1.6.1, section 1.6.2. So everything's broken down in like very, uh, digestible chunks that are often, you know, a page or less long and that really go through a lot of, a lot, go into this in, in rather tremendous detail, given how short and clear and digestible it is. So the first chapter then, and let me just break down what these chapters are. Of course, I, I still want to emphasize, even though we're about to talk about chapter one being what is woke, the key chapters are, of course, the second and third, which are woke craft. And I think this is the biggest takeaway from the book. If you do nothing else at a conceptual level, 
uh, is that you want to think in ter- uh, think of wokeness in terms of what it does, that it is in fact doing something. It's not just ideas. It's not just on paper. There is actually a, and I mean this quite literally, a Bolshevist activism attached to implementing wokeness at every turn. And Charles has named this phenomenon or the, the, the set of tools by which this is accomplished, I should say, woke craft, at least within these bureaucratic entities to which this book will apply either directly in the university or beyond. And so the first chapter that was understanding woke, it, it's a really simple structure. You really do have to understand what you're dealing with in order to be able to see how it works. And then when you understand how it works and you know what it looks like, then you can take the steps of finding it and countering it. Um, so the, it starts off straight out of the gate with talking, and I'm not going to go into too much detail. Obviously, you should read the book, but what is wokeness? And it, it der- derives the idea of, of wokeness you know, from cynical theories. I'm not going to pour through the book. My own definition of wokeness, just speaking off the cuff, I'm only literally going to go through a table of contents here, so I'm not going to get into any of the specific text of the book. I want you know people to get a flavor, but it, it's really good. Um, the uh, My definition for the woke is that you have you've been awakened, if you will, to critical consciousness, whether that critical consciousness is in the identity context, which is what it is now an intersectional identity consciousness, uh, or whether it's the older school critical consciousness that was the neo-Marxists answer to what they believed was false consciousness, which was essentially the broad, wide scale brainwashing of the working class by society to keep them trapped in a capitalist system that they believed was believe intrinsically exploits them. Woke means being aware that this is happening or believing, I really should say believing, accepting as an article of faith that this is happening. And so uh, Charles, leaning on cynical theories, brings up the idea of the two broad principles that we use to characterize applied postmodernism as kind of the, the initial stage and precursor to wokeness. And the first of these is what we call the postmodern, or you could really call it the woke Um Uh, knowledge principle, which is that knowledge is socially constructed and culturally contingent. The second of these is the political principle that we offered. And um, it's very important to understand that, you know, this political project actually starts to incorporate the critical theory into the kind of social constructivist postmodern lens. What it does is the political principle is that there are power dynamics associated with these social constructions. So this is kind of the birth of what we call applied postmodernism. The formal academic term would be um, the formal academic term for this would be critical constructivism. I've talked about this at length. If you listen to my podcast about Kimberly Crenshaw, you can get a pretty good amount of detail to that. And so the political principle is that, in fact, that there's a stratification of society that creates a political uh, bias across society um, that. Uh, has to be corrected for. In other words, we have to help the oppressed at the expense of the oppressor, as a matter of fact. And it's even nastier than this. This isn't Pincourt's point, but I'll make the point now. Um, It's even nastier than this because they, they actually believe that the oppressor class, as they see it, cannot be disenfranchised. And so, for example, for within critical race theory, the belief is that when they talk about storytelling and the unique voice of color and all of this, that we have to listen to black and brown voices and white voices, they say, have been heard or whatever it happens to be, whether they're physically excluding white people from black and brown spaces so they can get away from white supremacy. They actually believe that it is not possible to disenfranchise 
the people who are in positions of power. And so no matter how tyrannical, no matter how uh, awful people in the so-called oppressed group work, and this is repressive tolerance retooled, by the way, uh, no matter how badly they act, no matter how tyrannical they become, it's not possible in their view because racism is privilege plus power. It's not possible to disenfranchise the oppressor group. It's only possible. And in fact, it's a constant state that the oppressed group is disenfranchised, which creates this tilted playing field. So that's really the what we call the postmodern uh, political principle. We would call it just generally here a woke political principle. So we have a woke knowledge principle and a woke political principle we detail in cynical theories. Hopefully you've read that. And Charles adds to this a third, the he, he just calls it the subject principle, but the woke subject principle, uh, which is um, that as he phrases it, and I do, I'm actually going to read to you straight from it here, is that individuals are primarily defined by their group identity, white, female, black, European, cisgendered, etc. That is to say that they are subjected to their group identity in society. This is, of course, what the scholars, this is me, not Charles, uh, call positionality, he says, which is why I call this a subject principle. And this is the right name, right? So Kimberly Crenshaw says, in fact, that taking on I am black as opposed to I'm a person who happens to be black um, offers an anchor of subjectivity. In other words, it makes somebody into a subject. And this is a very key and important point that I, I regret missing, in fact, in cynical theories. And I'm very glad that, that Pincor adds here. Um, so these three principles for, for him outline what is the woke worldview? And I think thinking of it as a worldview or even a religion, as a matter of fact, is the way you have to go. And that so the beginning of this book, in very accessible language, lays out the idea that there are these kind of three core principles about how knowledge works, about how politics works, and about how subjecthood works. Um, and those ideas uh, frame out what the world, woke worldview is, what its belief system is. Uh, and it's very important to point out, by the way, that this positionality argument that you need an anchor of subjectivity, where as opposed to, as Kimberly Crenshaw puts it, she says that, um, this is the end of mapping the margins, by the way. Uh, she says that, uh, if you say, uh, I'm a person who happens to be black, that that strains, she says it's straining for a certain, uh, a certain universality that she believes doesn't exist. And she said, in effect, I am first a person, not an identity category. And she says, because the imposition by power of the identity category, that that's not how people in oppressed groups can understand the world. And we could talk in a separate podcast for an hour and a half about how this is the Hegelian master-slave dialectic, or Rousseauian actually master-slave dialectic, as transmitted through Hegel, as appropriated by Marx, as retooled by the neo-Marxists, as injected into identity Marxism that we face today. And so, he boils this down to understand this worldview in terms of these three principles um, that, that A, uh, knowledge is socially and culturally contingent, B, that there's a political manifestation to the stratification of society that is relevant to that social construction of knowledge, and C, that people understand themselves as subjects in the world in terms of their positionality, in other words, in terms of their identity and its alleged relational standing against the power dynamics of society. So he does a really good job talking about the woke worldview and its underlying ethos, uh, how he brings up the idea of oppression being a continuum um, where, where, you know, 
how do you measure oppression if you're going to have this kind of the, the word for it in their, the woke literature is kaleidoscopic. That's from Jose Medina's 2013 book. I can't think of the title off the top of my head. But Jose Medina calls it a kaleidoscopic consciousness, which is the neo-Marxist fracturing in the 1960s of what was critical consciousness into these various identity consciousnesses. And I've gone over again and again and again, so I'm not going to belabor it here about how Marcusa in particular identified that the working class had been stabilized and solidified. Horkheimer agreed with him. And so that if they wanted to find their revolutionary energy, they had to shift into other frames. And he picked identity politics, literally naming feminists, literally naming sexual minorities and racial minorities, the so-called ghetto populations in his words, literally the the unemployed, the outcasts of society, um, and, and said that they have to be cobbled together into a new working class, as he phrased it, or a new proletariat that would then want to rise up and, and achieve the revolution. And so how are you going to grade this? And it turns out that the answer is positionality, which they say is relational. It's how you understand how privileged versus oppressed you are, which is relational to the power dynamics in play. And then you have to look at that through an intersectional framework. And so understanding how these things compare, and if we were mathematical, we'd say in a broad partially ordered set, kind of gives this idea of this uh, oppression as a continuum as a mathematician. I'm not going to get too deep into the difference that a continuum is a technically a fully ordered set, uh, not a partially ordered set, but nevertheless, he does a good job treating that uh, subject and then gets into what I think is the most interesting part. Obviously, I'm, I'm ta- I like the way that he frames the woke ideology, but I'm not unaware of the woke ideology. I'm, I'm very glad he added the subject principle, though. But then we have this typology of woke related participants. So it's a, it's actually a relational uh, explanation of how are people related to the woke power structure, which is fun because it turns the uh, model of society that the woke use in kind of this cartoonish, fake, propped up um, conspiratorial way into something real. The woke phenomenon is a very intense power dynamic and people are uh related to it in, in significant and different ways. So he kind of just categorizes, he's got six different categories of people and it could get more granular, I suppose, but he calls them the woke and defines what that means. And it's people who, who generally accept the woke ideology and are advancing it very intentionally. And then there's the woke proximate who are kind of um, and this is a very important distinction, the woke and the woke proximate. You might call them woke adjacent if you wanted to use their kind of style of language. But uh, these are people who don't necessarily even really fully realize that they agree with it, but they've taken it on. Um, they've taken on quite a lot of it. And in fact, if you recall, about a year and a half ago, I wrote an article, Why the Woke, or I said, I think the title was No, the Woke Won't Debate You, Here's Why. And a bunch of people said that they would debate me immediately. And then they thought that I was playing some linguistic trick when I said, well, that means you're not woke. So the woke aren't debating me. And they, ident- they self-identify as woke, but in fact, they are not. They're woke proximate. Because if they were fully woke, they would realize or be very afraid that by engaging it. This is why Abram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, you won't find them in a debate. Um, they, they believe firmly that if they participate with people in the, the oppressor class and give them uh, access to promote their ideas or platform their ideas, especially in a setting that's going to then bring those ideas into people 
which they would say to marginalized communities to which it will do harm. But what they actually mean is other woke people who might hear it and be red pilled out of wokeness. Uh, they, they would feel complicit to, to give them, you know, for the view from their, their own beliefs is that that causes complicity. The woke proximate or woke adjacent don't have that compunction. They take on a lot of the woke views. They accept a lot of the woke views, but they are actually, um, just at the border of being liberal at this point, but they still adopt an overarching liberal framework, which would include debate and would include discussion, would include having these kinds of conversations. And so they haven't fully gone into the woke cult because if they had, they would understand why debate is uh, horrific and absolutely uh impossible for them to do. What the woke proximate are likely to do, though, is they're likely to prop up and support and argue on behalf of and vote for and whitewash or redwash, I guess we should say, all of these different woke um, ideas. And in particular, when they've come to a matter of woke policy. So they're they're more like fellow travelers. We'll try to use not use the, the correct term often of useful idiot, but they're more like fellow travelers with the woke who if you really got them down to brass tacks, they don't support the kind of pure, unadulterated wokeness. And in fact, you'll often find them argue that nobody actually thinks or believes that way, which is naive in the extreme. A third category that, that Pincourt lays out are opportunists. And this is very important because I've pointed out many times that the woke ideology is extraordinarily griftable. It's one of the most griftable ideologies in the in the history of ideologies. Uh, why? Because it's so subjective. All you have to do is be able to claim hurt feelings, not even your own hurt feelings, though if you happen to be in one of these oppressed classes, then your hurt feelings, your lived experience, the lived realities of your existence uh, are are unassailable. In another podcast, I actually said they're properly basic. They are a foundation for knowledge. You cannot challenge somebody's lived experience of oppression according to the woke. Well, uh, that can also, the, the, if you express that, so I don't want to lose my train of thought, but if you, if you express that, um, that lived experience, then, uh, that that's a subjective claim. Like were you micro aggressed against, if I happen to say, Hey man, long time, no see, um, it's your decision as to whether or not that was a anti-Asian, um, or I guess I've heard recently that they're also saying it's anti-Native American microaggression. I don't know how that works, but because uh, it's a literal translation of how Bujian from Mandarin. Uh, but at any rate, um, if since it's subjective, right? Since it's subjective, all you have to do is pretend you have those hurt feelings or claim that you have those hurt feelings. And you could, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm doing a critical theory here by getting into the conscious and unconscious, but it is actually possible. And I know it's possible because I know people who have woke up from doing it, that you can do this consciously. You know, you're a grifter, you know, you're pretending to have your feelings hurt because you know, it works, but you can also do it unconsciously where you have these little decisions to make life goes on. And you know, uh, you, you have to make the sale. You have to make the deal. You have to try to get something done. Maybe it's for a really good cause. I know some people who work, I'm not going to get into any details just in, in case anybody can trace back and figure out who they are, but who work in industries where they are doing massive amounts of humanitarian good. And there are times where it looks like the thing that might do a lot of good for a lot of people isn't going to go. And they happen to be a brown woman, for example, or a black woman, and they happen to, or an immigrant, and they happen to bring that up. 
so that they can leverage that fact to push the thing over the edge. You do that enough times. This is why I tell young people, and I recently did a podcast about that on my only subs, uh, other podcasts, the subscriber only one, please subscribe, go check it out. Uh, I told young people never lie to fit in. Well, if you lie to make a deal or you lie to fit in, eventually you kind of become that you lose track of who you are. So there are those kinds who aren't even conscious that they're playing along with this, but they're doing it still in a kind of a cynical way that's sort of opportunistic. Uh, they may become woke proximate as a result if they're doing it unconsciously, but if they're doing it consciously, then, you know, they're just grifters. Um, and this is very griftable. It's very easy to pretend. And I started to say a minute ago, you don't even have to be one of the oppressed group members because offense by proxy is also something that you can subjectively assess. I could be, for example, the whitest of white men and whatever, and I could be woke and I could say, well, don't this, this happened to Helen. So I can actually give an example when she did a paper while she was doing her master's thesis, um, on Othello, it turns out, and we have to get into the nitty gritties of, of the, of the, uh, literature, but in, in Othello, you have this scandalous relationship between Othello, who's a Moor, and Desmodona, who is not. And, uh, she was writing the paper and her job at the time as a student was to study the context, you know, the cultural context of the late medieval and early modern period when Shakespeare would have been writing. And it was her conclusion that strongly supported by both the historical evidence and the textual evidence of Othello itself, that the scandal was that the relationship was cross-religious, not cross-racial, Christian-Muslim, rather than uh, light-skinned, dark-skinned. And when Helen submitted this to the professor, she was told that it needed to be framed out in terms of the race, not in terms of the religion. And the reason given was, how would an African-American in America feel if they read this? So this was taking offense for something that's not even offensive, taking offense for, of, for something by proxy in a totally subjective thing. Now, if you can just get good at that, you can pretend so easily. Again, it's so open to grifters. This is one of the many reasons why I talk about the so-called iron law of woke corruption. This is so open to grifters. So he identifies what opportunists look like in the situation and why in particular though this, and I know I just went into a lot of detail uh, from my own arguments about this, about why uh Wokeness is such a griftable ideology. It's so filled with grifters and so filled with corruption. And at the end of the day, it's because it's ultimately subjective. It's very wrapped up in his language with the woke subject principle. He then flips the script over and looks at the other side of the coin. And he says there are woke dissidents. That's people like me. That's people like him. People who will stand up. They are dissident to the woke movement. They are against it. That means these are people who know what wokeness is and reject it uh, and fight against it. And there's not a lot to, to, to go into. You, you can read his, his argument about what they are and how they should be identified. But um, woke dissidence is, is the obvious, uh, you know, um, pushback. And they're trying to call it a backlash. Uh, they're sane people, basically, who don't who realize this is dangerous and don't want it. But he also compares that against a fifth group that he calls latent dissidents. And latent dissidents are people who would be dissident if they knew what wokeness is and that it's happening and that it's dangerous. The the for for me again, I'm not going to do his arguments, but for me, 
I operated in all the work that I've done basically since on this issue, since like 2016 or earlier maybe, but especially 2016 when I started reading their literature, I operated under the belief that if most normal people knew what this was, they would hate it and want to fight against it and drop it. Only a very small percentage of people will actually truly want to be woke. And then for whatever reasons, moral or uh, emotional or whatever, whatever reason, some people are going to be woke proximate. And of course, some people are grifters. Um, but I realized that most people would become woke dissidents if they could be moved into uh, moved into understanding what it is and realizing how dangerous it is. And so most of the, what is the, the motivating animus of most of my work has been to inform people on what the woke movement is, believing that if they actually understood it for what it is, that they would be that they would become woke dissidents. As a matter of fact, then what I was assuming is that there's a large population, and I think it's true even in universities, uh, a large population of latent dissidents who realize who who would be very much against, they're disposed against wokeness, but they aren't aware of what it is clearly enough or aren't aware of the threat clearly enough to actually be woke dissidents. And then the the last class he calls the uninitiated, the sixth class, the uninitiated, these are, or we could call them normies. They're people who literally don't even know this is going on at all or that are absolutely just not interested in it whatsoever. And it's probably, of course, the largest population. Um, and so... I believe that there are a lot of latent dissidents. Charles believes there's a lot of latent dissidents. But what he does in the book is beyond doing this. He actually goes through, since it's geared toward a university setting, and he says, you're most likely to find these people of these different categories in these different departments. You know, whether if it's it's something like humanities or the arts or social sciences, you're going to find a lot of the woke. You get into social sciences departments, though, and maybe into the softer sciences like environmentalism or ecology or biology or something like this. I know the biologists will get upset that I said they're a softer science, but I'm a mathematician with a background in physics, so you're going to have to deal with that little like academic turf war and just deal with it. You're going to find a lot of woke proximate people who aren't necessarily woke. Uh, But if you get into departments like physics and engineering, you're going to find a lot of, in fact, latent dissidents um, who are are actually, they would be against this if they realize that they need to be and informing them will help. And then there are, of course, lots of the uninitiated uh, and not nearly enough actual woke dissidents who we often say are people who have been red pilled or they're waking up or whatever. So that's a, it's really a stellar first chapter. And I say this pointing out also that it's only 11 pages, or at least in the, the this draft, it might have expanded to 13 or 12. It's a very short first paragraph, a very quick, useful overview of um, what is wokeness? What, how does it think about the world? What is its moral, uh, moral drive? What's ethos? How does it think about oppression since that's rooted in its ethos? How does it work as a political project and who's who who and who who is related to this as a movement in what way and kind of where you, where can you find them? Uh, of course, this is geared in terms of universities, but it would be very easy to create a parallel bit of material if somebody wanted to that would outline it in a typical corporate structure or a typical government agency or something like that. And so it's a great little introduction to what's going on. Uh the second chapter, Wokecraft, is maybe almost three times as long. Um, and this is, I think, the, I mean, 
obviously what people are going to be most interested in and what the book is really designed for is to give people counter woke strategies, counter woke craft. That's the third chapter. The second chapter, woke craft, I think is a very important in, uh, um, contribution to what's going on in the literature around this subject. And first kind of really great contribution to it um, because it lays out very clearly and very specifically in many cases exactly how the woke do what they do to think of wokeness not as a body of ideas or even necessarily as a belief system but as a political project an activist movement that is posing as scholarship um and i like that phrasing by the way we don't have mo the problem is that what we have in the universities very often we don't have professors who happen to be woke we have woke activists who are posing as professors. They're not genuinely professors. They're professing bullshit. Um, but that's my opinion. I don't, don't let me taint this book. So Wokecraft, you know, he opens up the chapter with a great discussion of the key concept of Wokecraft. He talks about what kind of situations you see Wokecraft arise in. He details that what it, it operates upon are certain sites of oppression where it looks for a particular problem. Uh, that it can then frame out as where oppression arises and then start to take action upon that. It talks, he talks about the tool that when that problem is found of problematization, which, you know, is something that Helen and I harp on throughout cynical theories. And I really drive into on, on, uh, new discourses for the, the problematic is an interesting, I think, uh, entry in the translations from the wokish encyclopedia on, on new discourses. But problematize, which I made two different entries, the problematic as as a noun and verb. Yes, as a noun, something can be a problematic uh, like, you know, um, you could say that, that Taco Tuesday is problematic adjective or you could say the existence of pro of of uh, Taco Tuesday at all is a problematic. Uh, that needs to be addressed. And they use the language both ways that way. Uh, but problem, problematize as a verb to, to identify how something is so-called problematic is, I think, one of the more insightful, just to toot my own horn a minute, entries in the uh, encyclopedia. So you may want to go check that out. But he goes into it in pretty good detail. But then it gets into the nitty-gritties, and he says, you know, there are goals. And then as a matter of fact, the woke not only have goals, they they make advances and they make incursions and defines what the differences between the goals, advances, and incursions are that, that, the, that Wokecraft undertakes. Um, and then uses that to outline how the so-called, he, he frames it as we do in cynical theories and, and in new discourses, how the goal is to entrench the, social, the critical social justice perspective into whether it's a department, whether it's into a college or a university overall, uh, any bureaucratic or institutional setting this would generalize to. So understanding that they have goals and that they have strategies and that they make these things called advancements and they're doing that to achieve incursions so that they can entrench the perspective and thus turn over the institution. This is the kind of, uh, for people who've heard my, I think I put it on only subs also, uh, my argument about the paperclip maximizer. I also did this in my Tampa workshops when the videos for those will be coming out before too long. The paperclip maximizer idea that, that the goal all critical theories do is make more critical theorists. That's their whole thing. And they do that by turning institutions into critical theory making machines. And so that 
is achieved by entrenching the CSJ perspective, the critical social justice perspective into the institution. And this, I think the most poignant example I could give of the idea of entrenchment is if we flash back, as I have many times, to the equity task force in the state of Washington, when they were sitting down in the video that Benjamin Boyce put out, just kind of catching them at it and putting it on his channel with a little bit of commentary. They talk about how the, the one of the goals that they have of creating an equity task force for the state of Washington is to make sure that that equity task force and the office of, of diversity, equity, inclusion, or whatever that is supposed to establish will in fact be relevant for a minimum of 50 years in the state of Washington. So that's entrenchment. And so their goal then, and, and Charles does a great job of making this clear, is not just to take over an institution, but to entrench their ideology into the institution so that it's very hard to take back out once it gets in and will stay there for the very long haul. This is the long march through the institutions. And what the goal of it is, is to actually entrench a new ideology through policy, through culture, uh, through kind of every means that you can imagine so that it not only does wokeness get brought in, but that it's very hard to take out and that it should be there basically permanently afterwards. The next section of the of the Wokecraft chapter talks about the principles of Wokecraft. I'm just going to hit each one of these as I read through. The first one is always try. And this is something you have to appreciate about the woke is that they are consummate activists. So everywhere they can see something that might be able to be problematized, this is why you get this perception that they never rest. And Solzhenitsyn warns about this. He says, you might be tired, you might be exhausted, but I assure you the communist that you're against is not tired. And that's a paraphrasing, not a quote. Um, always try. Everywhere they see the possibility to make an advance or an incursion, they do so. They're also very subtle and subversive. We've read that in Marcuse. We've read that everywhere. They're, they've realized in the 60s in particular that taking a direct frontal assault doesn't really work. Uh, instead, as Pincourt phrases it, always use the least amount of force necessary. Their goal is to be very gentle so that these incursions are happening and you don't even know they're happening until it's too late. And that's the third principle is they always try to go unnoticed until it's too late. So you get this very Trojan horse um, parasitic, vampiric, viral kind of these, why the, that's why these metaphors stick, right? When you pick up a virus, you don't know you're sick until you're like properly infected with this thing. And it, it that's the idea is it, you're not supposed to know a parasite. Like if you, I've, I don't think I've ever had one. Maybe I did once when I was a kid, if you've ever had a leech, they're really hard to get off of you. It's a parasite, really hard to get rid of. But you don't even feel it when it, I mean, you're bleeding like crazy when you get one. If, if when you take it off, you can see how badly you're bleeding and you don't even know that it happened. People who have been bitten by ticks realize that you never even it somehow can walk on your skin and you don't even feel it. And then it can bite you and it's able to numb you as it bites you. So you don't even feel it bite you. And so it might actually be on you for, you know, dangerously for days before it's engorged itself sufficiently and falls off. Um, that's why these metaphors of the parasite or the virus, or, you know, if we take that kind of um, mythological, the vampire, uh, all apply so well. And I like the vampire analogy. I don't know that it's applicable to this book specifically, but I like the, the vampire metaphor because the idea is that the vampire can't bite you until you invite him in. He can't just come in and different lores I know, but one of the pieces of vampire lore is that you can't be bitten by a vampire until you invite the vampire in. It can't cross your threshold unless invited some kind of vampire magic or whatever. And so here, wokeness 
kind of has to be allowed to be invited, has to be invited in, it has to be slipped in. And then when it gets in, it will attack you. And just like a vampire, the goal is either to turn you or to kill you. And if they do it right, then you turn, you become a vampire in your own right. If they just drink your blood and drain you or whatever, I guess you die. And that's exactly how the woke ideology works. It will either, it will turn every institution that's worth turning that it can turn. Ones that aren't worth turning, it will kill. But also, if it turns out that they try to to turn the host institution and it fights back, then they're, and it fractures and falls apart. They're more than happy to see it die. Now, I've given the logic before. In critical race theory, once critical race theory enters an institution, any institution that it doesn't capture is going to be interpreted post hoc as having been racist and therefore deserving to die. So the principle in, in counter Warcraft here is try to go unnoticed until it's too late. You have to understand how insidious this is. This insidious, Wokecraft is not so avant-garde. They occasionally screw up and do something. Right now on the national stage, and even a lot of school boards, because they're flustered, you see them going way too hard. They're not trying to go unnoticed until it's too late. They're they're going bonkers. But typically, they try to be really subtle. Um The fourth point, I was going to try, I, start, I hesitated because uh, I, I'll just say it. They use a lot of very subtle means. People who remember the Evergreen story, for example, will, will recall Brett Weinstein explaining that the equity plan that was going to change and ultimately damn the university or the college, I guess, um, was sent out the night before, very late, before the faculty meeting the next day with a broken link. And the only reason anybody could possibly have read it in advance, it being quite long, but not super long, was because Brett did all the hard work to dig up and find the actual document. And he had to send the document himself to uh, the entire faculty uh, the night before with very little time. That's try to go unnoticed until it's too late, sort of, in a sense. And then, you know, he points out then that every advance should succeed. Uh, so this is something that people underestimate. And I, I strongly encourage you not only to read this, but to listen to uh, or read or pay attention to Vocal Distance. Um, on Twitter, he goes by at Vocal Distance, uh, W-O-K-A-L. You will all kind of know who he is, Vocal Distance. Um, this is a, the, the people doing this again, I don't, their, their ideology is not smart, but they're strategically very smart. And so they're always trying these incursions. And this is kind of a big, huge take, take home from this. And every single thing, no matter how small has a strategic purpose, you always have to think that the woke have a strategic purpose for every decision. And so when you can start to combine these, I think Charles gives a really great example about how they'll ask for some very small change in the language of a policy that seems utterly irrelevant to everybody. And then they kind of make a bit of a fuss around it if until you put it in. And so people just kind of nod their heads and go along with it. Okay. Yeah. You can say for diversity or with an emphasis on diversity or whatever you want to put, or, you know, valuing diversity, something that seems very innocuous. Um, but that has a broader purpose in a longer term campaign that ultimately is to turn or kill the institution. In the case of a university, they want to turn all of them. They don't want to kill them unless they absolutely can't. You might find some of these, like if they got into Hillsdale, they'd probably try to kill it. Um, or university of Dallas, it turns out it's pretty based. They might try to kill it, but they'll turn every major cultural center if they can. Their goal is to seize the means of cultural production. But everything they do, it, it's not, I'm not saying there's some grand conspiracy involved. It's just the mentality that they're trying to change things. Millions of people, or at least 
thousands and thousands, many thousands of people are all working with the same general vision, which is that the institution must focus, must center these ideas. And so you don't need a conspiracy. You don't need, you know, some central agency dumping a boilerplate when you have something that's actually very simplistic and a set of ideas and everything's supposed to move toward centering those ideas. And so they, they're very strategic. They'll go little bit by little bit. The long march through the institutions is a long march. It was supposed to take 50 years. It was supposed to be a generational fight. And the last of these principles he points out is that for them, the ends justify the means as any power obsessed ideology would be. Um, he then details some key tools of Wokecraft. And I've spent a lot of time talking about these, but I think he puts them in such a clear and valuable way. There's the, it's ironic, Iron Law of Woke Projection comes into play again, but he, he details the Woke dog whistle. Now, of course, they accuse everybody of using conservative dog whistles for everything, but as a matter of fact, they use a lot of dog whistling language. In other words, they've tailored language so that people who are woke know that they're doing a woke advance or incursion, which will lead other woke people to um, support it uh, and to, to try to actualize it so that every advance should succeed. And they, they, they really do this. And I, we've talked about this before, you know, many times with Marcusa, you can't read Marcusa till you understand that the entire thing is written in dog whistles, that when he uses words like liberation, you have to realize how loaded that term is, or we could get even further down. We could just say when it's a word like democracy, you have to realize how loaded that term is. It could be diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, racism, race, all of these terms, authenticity, uh, voice, like all of these terms are heavily loaded terms. And in fact, they get used in particular ways that really show to other woke, other woke people will know. Critical theorists who read Marcusa understand something very different than somebody outside of critical theory who reads Marcusa. And this is true all the way down to today in your standard boilerplate, uh, administrative boilerplate that a university committee is throwing around. The woke people will know the woke stuff. And one of the tools, the other key tools he points out then is called woke crossover words. And I've I can't say enough about how important this is. I go around after talking with a, actually I went into a, I did a talk in Oklahoma where it started with an invocation and a pastor started talking about praying for uh, discernment. Discernment is actually the key to fighting off kind of Marxist or communist advances because you have to be able to discern when you're dealing with language that's being manipulated. The whole thing is rhetorical manipulation. It's not based in evidence or reality. It's not based in caring about the thing, the charges that it holds up. The goal of Marxism is quite simply to, of whatever stripe, is to achieve revolution. Everything that it does, base, everything that it invokes to get to that point where its people get to control the path of the revolution will be in control on the other side of the revolution. Everything it does up to that point is window dressing. It's all disposable. Um, but woke crossover terms, this is where, for example, diversity is a great example. If you understand wokeish, you know that diversity actually means commissars. It means formally trained experts in critical theories of race who have their authentic voice of color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when you don't do that, you have this problem where the word is something you you think you know what it means. Everybody knows what diversity means. And of course, you know, okay, a little bit more diversity. That sounds good. Yeah, there are all these things that sound g great, like anti-racism and diversity and inclusion. And, you know, this is, this is, these terms have, have two meanings and that they're used to, to cross 
crossover, uh, the, the crossover is, is the strategic equivocation, I should say, that allows people to do woke incursions by, say, getting people to go to, to, what, so one example of how they can be used is people will use those words. They will speak on the left's frame. So they'll talk about diversity and how important diversity is. And you look like an asshole if you refuse to, or if you refuse to, uh, uh, you know, do so without repudiating the woke. You do look like a conspiracy theorist or an asshole or whatever. And so um, they get people to support the words. The other way that they do this is actually by inserting the words into policy and they become they're the banal meaning until after the fact of implementation and then they become the specific politically activist meaning. And th- so that leads into where he d- details what I what he calls woke micro tactics. And so they're like the little pieces that these key tools uh, use to actually act. So this is where the, the real meat of of what's going on with woke craft starts to come out very clearly. He's going to set up theoretically what the activist strategy looks like. And then you get to the actual tactics that are used, and I'll just kind of name them, subverting liberal decision-making. I've talked about how this is a virus on liberal, the liberal body politics. So the idea of subverting liberal decision-making is like just um, all kinds of, I'm going to let you read it yourself, but he gives all kinds of examples of how the liberal decision-making process, whether it's the the desire for decorum or not to be uh, considered unrespectable or to not make a fuss, or, you know, to switch from formal voting systems to informal voting systems, from formal meetings to informal meetings. There's a lot of decision-making processes that liberal entities use and even bureaucracies within them use, and they want to subvert those to their own uh, uses. A great example, again, to go back to the equity task force meeting from Washington, where somebody comes in late and you have the one woman sitting there and she goes on and says, well, if this was South Africa, then we would stop everything and ask him, how's your family? How's your day? We wouldn't be so obsessed with an agenda. You know, we would talk to him and we'd get him caught up for 10 or 20 minutes. And then when the other guy finally, you know, this kind of awkwardly, she rambles and it awkwardly kind of ends. The other guy says, I know this is the voice of white supremacy coming out of my mouth, but can we actually, uh, you know, check off these agenda items because we have to do it. But what you, and then this causes its own little fight and uproar. What you actually see there is the relaxing or the subverting of liberal decision making to turn it into something more consensus driven. Uh, he then points out quite rightly that Charles does that, that the, they do this with a lot of bullying tactics. And this is where I've outlined the big three. I think I did podcasts and only talked about two of them, but the big three are that they try to drain you of moral authority. They try to make you look evil. Like you're a racist, you're a sexist, you have bad moral motivations and therefore are not credible. Uh, and they bully you that way. That's one thing. And his framing is different than mine. I'm giving you my framing because I want you to read his words and his ideas and his terms and it's not mine, and I don't want to present his ideas like they're mine. Uh, a second one is that they drain you of epistemic authority. They try to make you look or feel stupid, um, like you don't understand the, even the real definition of racism. You didn't know that it's privilege was power. You don't understand systemic thinking. You don't even know what these words mean. You know, you don't know that diversity means something more specific. You know, all these kinds of like bullying tactics that make you feel dumb or make other people think that you aren't smart enough to understand the, the theory or that you're just not qualified. Or third, they try to undermine your psychological authority, uh, for lack of a better way to phrase that, which is that they'll accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist or paranoid 
or crazy or gaslight you and the rest of the people say, for example, critical race theory is, is not even taught in schools. It's a conservative boogeyman that it's, a, that's an example of draining people of psychological authority. And those three bullying tactics happen again and again and again. So Charles does a great job of outlining some of those and how they manifest in these institutional bureaucratic settings. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail. Uh, he, he lists a number of other smaller ones, uh, at the end of this section, but he gives, uh, he also mentions telegraph, project, subvert, and invert as 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 one near the end of the section, um, which is basically the iron law of woke projection and flipping over meanings and things. It's very very insightful little little section subsection, but the one I want to actually spend a minute on. I've already described it. In fact, is the reverse Mott and Bailey Trojan horse, which I think is actually I know it's a mouthful. I actually think that this is one of the most insightful little pieces in this book. So I'm actually going to I'm not going to read his argument because I'm just going to stay superficial here. But I want to outline what that is. That so we're all familiar now. If you listen to this podcast anyway, with the idea of the Mott and Bailey, the Mott and Bailey is when you have a very activist definition that that. You want to occupy, uh, and then you have a very um, defensible position. So, for example, critical race theory is in schools or whatever that's very activist. You might want to occupy that. Critical race theory is just teaching honest history. Uh, critical race theory is doing all these things about teaching about privilege, oppression, blah, blah, blah. That's the Bailey, the Mott, the very defensible position is it's just honest history. And the idea is when you have a Mott and Bailey used defensively is that you are doing some activism. People call you on it and you retreat to it's just this very defensible. It's just honest history. It's just teaching what slavery was. It's just talking about race in an in a honest way. It's just caring about the right things or whatever. It's just you must be a monster for thinking or paranoid or stupid for thinking it's something else. And then when the pressure comes off, you come out of that Mott position and go back to the activist one. That's the idea of a Mott and Bailey. Just to summarize again very quickly, it's based off of a medieval castle structure. The Bailey is a field. It's not very defended. If it gets marauders show up or robbers show up, people can, that live in it can retreat into the Mott, which is a very highly defensible castle on a hill. Very hard to conquer, can withstand, you know, siege for some amount of time with provisions. And so the goal is you don't want to, the idea is you don't want to live there. You want to live out in the field. And so you can retreat into the Mott and fight off the problem until it goes away. And then you can go back out into the land you want to be in. Same thing. You have a very uh, tenuous argument that's probably very unpalatable to most people. A very wide majority of people don't like it. You get pressed. You give a very defensible BS the I'm in trouble and I got caught explanation. It's just this very normal thing. And then when people stop paying attention because they're busy or because the fight ends or whatever, you go back out to the very activist thing until the next time you have to hide. That's the Mott and Bailey. And ultimately that's a defensive use of Mott and Bailey. And what Charles has done extremely well, and I, I found it to be so insightful and important and people absolutely need to understand this, is he pointed out that there is a offensive use of the Mott and Bailey as well. And that the woke use this offensive use a lot. This is what he called the reverse Mott and Bailey Trojan horse. So the idea with the Mott and Bailey is you are presenting the wild big argument and you are forced to retreat to the def highly defensible BS argument. And then you come back to the activist when the pressure goes away. This is the opposite. This is where you use one of these woke crossover terms like diversity and you insert it into policy. We're going to have a special focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
and people don't blink because you don't ask, well, what does that mean when it's an everyday word? You know, or we're going to embrace an anti-racist lens when we engage in, you know, campus politics or whatever it happens to be. They don't they don't ask what an everyday word means. So they don't realize it's one of these woke crossover terms. And so it becomes, and I used to call these, and on new discourses I do, I call them Trojan horse terms or Trojan horse words or Trojan horse terminology because that word goes in as policy. And then the second it's in, people weren't paying attention. And then it gets voted on, it gets approved. Now it's policy. And then the, the, so that they, what they do is they present the mod and it expands into the Bailey layer. That's the offensive use. So it's like a Trojan horse. Oh, it's just a big wooden horse. And then when he gets inside, the soldiers come out, the spies or the assassins come out, kill the guards and open the gates. And that is a very important thing to realize as a woke tactic that they use again and again and again. They put seemingly innocuous language using a lot of these so-called woke crossover terms into policy. And they use that. And once it becomes policy, they use that in the very specific activist way to start forcing people to play by their rules because now it's policy and they don't haggle about the definition because they don't want anybody to notice that they're doing this till it's too late. They don't haggle about the definitions until it's already in there and then it becomes very specific. Uh, a kind of example of this that was a little bit more plain faced was with the with the Southern Baptist Convention where they uh, introduced with their infamous resolution nine in 2019. They That's an institution, by the way, the Southern Baptist Convention and all of its seminaries, those are universities of a sense, are all the those are an institution. And so this, these institutional incursions work there too. So what they did was they said, we're going to bring in critical race theory and intersectionality as an analytical tool subordinate to scripture. So what they, the Trojan horse is set up by saying it's an analytical tool and they make the horse look even safer by saying it's going to be subordinate to scripture. Folks, get real. Woke isn't subordinate to anything. It is insidious. It is subversive and it will eat scripture too. Scripture too. It will eat anything. And the people who are activists who, who, who are in on this will know that. They will know that once critical race theory and intersectionality, this positional uh, sensibility enters into the institution, it's going to eat the thing from the inside. And so they propose this thing in very saccharine and seemingly banal language. We're going to resolution nine, which by the way, all these tactics kind of showed up there. What did they do? They Proposed Resolution 9 on a docket of 13 resolutions. This happened in April, I think, of 2019. They argued all day long and ran down the clock to subvert the liberal decision-making process on Resolutions 1 through 8. And then when there was virtually no time left, they had Resolutions 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. And they said, well, we have to vote on these as a block with basically no debate or discussion. And the most controversial one was um, Proposition 9. Resolution 9, uh, to bring in critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools subordinate to scripture. Believe me, people, the people who did this knew what they were doing. You want names? Let's name Al Mohler. Let's name Ed Stetzer. They know what they're doing. They did this on purpose. I could name more names, but you can also go just look and see who was speaking on it, um, who was doing it. They know what they're doing. Okay, so... Now we're going to vote on these as a block. And then once it gets in, now critical race theory, oh, don't worry. It's subordinate to scripture. It's just an analytical tool. It's just, there's your freaking Mott and Bailey. Now the Trojan horse is in. Why do you think those videos we did on the rooftop, what I did with Michael O'Fallon and Peter Bogosian, the rooftop in New York City were titled the Trojan horse. 
because Michael read to me the first time I'd ever heard it in my life, Resolution 9, both Peter and I, and he said, what do you think of this with the camera rolling? And I just said, you've got yourself a nice wooden horse outside your gate. That's what I think of this. It's Trojan horse. And so it was an example of this reverse uh, Mott and Bailey Trojan horse analytical tool. It's not just an analytical tool. It is a worldview. It is an entire ideology. And in fact, it's a totalizing ideology. And therefore, it's not going to stay subordinate to scripture. It's going to subvert and invert scripture. That's this other tactic subvert, you know, telegraph project and subvert invert. Um, so it's it. This is this was used in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, unequivocally. Uh, and so you can see it in this institutional setting. So this is a very I don't think he gives this example in the book. So it's very uh, a very good one to bring up for my friends on the Southern Baptist Convention. But you can easily see how this could happen in a physics department, for example, or in any uh, institutional setting. It's a good time to remind you that they have literally a paper called uh, women's studies as a virus. It could be any of these identity Marxist studies fields, not just women's studies as a virus. They compare themselves favorably, as I've said many, many times to HIV, Ebola, and SARS, also to cancer, which represents true transformative change. Transformative, by the way, is one of these, you know, woke bellwether words that means wokeness is happening. Transformative means it's a communist agenda. Um, they're going to transform it into something completely different when on the other side of the revolution, which is the point, uh, so you need to be aware of that. But they said, and, and cancer represents true transformative change. They said in that paper, the example they actually give is that you would train undergraduate biology students in women's studies to make them become viral agents that would then go into biology graduate departments and start to subvert them from within. They become the Trojan horse or they become the virus. That's not to be detected until they get in. And so you actually, this mentality is actually core to woke craft. So it's a very important uh, inclusion in this book. This is a very important section. It actually spans a 15 pages, which is a pretty big section for this short book. This is a, not the, just the reverse Martin Bailey thing, the the whole micro tactics thing where all this stuff kind of comes together. Very kind of important chunk that's longer than the introductory chapter, the summary of what wokeness is. Longer than the entire summary of wokeness is this summary of these so-called micro tactics that they actually use to turn over institutional settings. Um, then goes on to kind of like summarize how white woke micro tactics work. This section two point five using subterfuge, exaggerating support, quelling dissent. So in other words, they're creating consensus looking cultural conditions so that it looks like they have far more support than they do and far less uh, disagreement that they do partly connected to the bullying. And then on, and this was, I guess my insistence. I just went through the, um, uh, I just went through the woke virus thing in very brief. I did a whole podcast on it. If you want to actually hear the paper itself, I read the women's studies as a virus paper as a podcast here on new discourses, but he calls it uh, in section 2.6, the grand tactic, woke viral infection. So when you put all these things together, again, that ideal metaphor of the virus, or it could be the vampire if you want, uh, comes to the fore. And so he actually, uh, we discussed this at some length while he was writing the manuscript um, and added this section where he actually talks about it in the language of viruses, you know, critical, the sections are critical receptor infection, diversity receptor infection, social receptor infection, and STEM. So he actually points points out that there are certain receptor sites within a liberal bureaucracy in a university at least, but I think they apply in all of the uh, 
any liberal bureaucracy, there are these receptors in liberal institutions and in the liberal body politic, but in their, their bureaucratic institutions, there are receptor sites upon which the woke craft attaches and inserts its woke DNA in, often through the reverse Mott and Bailey Trojan horse, but through other methods as well, the, the woke micro tactics summarize. So this is a tremendously good overview and probably the best overview in print now so far. Uh, I know local distance, as I've mentioned before, was working on, I don't know if it's still about woke tactics, because I know that he got very interested in doing a book about postmodernism, so I don't know if he got distracted. But certainly for now, this is the best thing in print, talking about the actual woke tactics that they use to take over university departments. And like I said, it's only th this this chapter is only 30 pages and, and relatively small uh, page sizes. So it's, it's a quick and accessible read. Um, that I think is indispensable to anybody who works in a bureaucratic uh, setting or that's interested in figuring out how to craft strategies to fight back in these bureaucratic settings. And that's where chapter three comes in, counter woke craft. So in chapter one, he lays out what woke is, the woke commitments, the woke ideology itself, the woke ethic. And then in chapter two, he lays out the woke method, which we call woke craft to compare it to spy craft to show that it's very crafty. And then in chapter three, he's like, what do you do about this? How do you fight back? First section out of the gate and counter woke craft, how to spot it before it's too late, why you need to take it seriously, why you need to be familiar with the, the critical social justice perspective in order to do that. You, I, I get asked all the time, how do you fight back? Or, you know, I don't want to read, I get asked all the time, actually, I don't want to have to read all this, these theories. I don't want to have to learn critical race theory. I just want to stop it. And I keep telling people, I'm sorry, the price of admission to fight back directly, not everybody needs to fight back directly, but many people do. The, the price of admission is you have to learn it. You have to learn what woke is. You have to learn what woke craft looks like. You must be as familiar as possible with it. Then you must be vigilant. And in particular, he points out, you have to watch out for woke words. That's the first section of the chapter. And I'll point out, you know, there's this video. I actually just frustratedly one day, not that long ago, Googled. Uh, I did, I think, use Google. I watched a YouTube video. I just went to YouTube, actually. I think I typed in how to stop communism, which is in f desperate frustration. And there's a video by that title from the 50s, uh, it turns out. And so I watched this video. I don't remember if it's like burrows or something like that. But I watched this video. This, you know, It's very 50s. And he goes through this, how do you stop communism? And it boils down to you, this exactly. You need to take it seriously. You need to know what, you know your enemy, he says. You have to know how it thinks and what it does. And then you have to, you know, understand how it operates. And you have to learn to be able to spot it in real time, be discerning, and then take appropriate action to counter it. And so this is actually necessary. If you don't want to fight back directly, that's fine. Find other support roles. You can be a builder who goes build goes and builds an alternative the best you can, best of luck. The environment's actually in some ways better for that than it was before, but it's still not good. It's going to be an uphill battle. We need those people too. You can be a support person. You can not take it on directly yourself, but maybe you work with as a, as an errand runner or a secretary or an assistant or, you know, a research assistant or whatever for somebody who is trying to take it on directly. You can actually just give support in other ways, like, um, you know, raising money to pay for the work that's being done or, you know, there's lots of things you can do, moral support, whatever. There are a lot of roles just, you can work totally separately and re-knitting communities. I've said, that's a big deal. Not everybody has to be the person who's taking it on directly, but the people who become leaders and taking it on directly 
don't have other options. You must, in his exact words on the table of contents here, be as familiar with the critical social justice perspective as possible. Then you must be vigilant. And most of that's going to be a very tedious, and let me tell you my life, very tedious activity of learning to watch for woke words. But at the beginning of all of this, let me just point, let me just reel this back is take it seriously. One of the ways that woke has been able to be so successful in its long march over the last 50 years is so many people, especially in the university, especially in departments, as I will phrase it, that should know better, which would be the sciences, engineering, the classics, um, even the arts and the humanities to a very strong degree didn't take it seriously. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, and this was my life back in 2016 when we started the idea of writing hoax papers, who would say, well, this is just fringe. This is just ridiculous. It's so stupid. Nobody would take it seriously. No, you must take it seriously. It is very serious. It's a very effective activism. The ideas themselves are stupid, and that's actually almost perfect cover. In fact, it's worse than perfect cover. I think Curtis Yarvin uh, who does not like me one bit because he thinks I'm a shitlib has made this argument quite well is that the more nonsensical the ideas are, the more they operate like a uniform. Uh, and if you have a uniform, he says you have an army that if they're everybody and Curtis's argument is very straightforward and correct is everybody can, uh, agree to the truth, but you are really showing some commitment to, to agree to nonsense. And so when you find somebody who agrees to the nonsense, you know, you have somebody who's very committed to a cause. And uh, so it turns out that it's a super effective camouflage and a super effective um, movement activity to link your cult beliefs to total nonsense. Uh, and what happens is, is that causes people on uh, to not take it seriously when they must, when they should. So you must take it seriously. You must, if you're going to fight back directly or lead fighting back directly in these institutional settings and somebody better, lots of people better at every institution, every single department and every single university should have dissidents who are taking up this cause. And that cause starts with being, after taking it seriously, becoming very familiar with the perspective. I even rate, have read that if that the, the, these movements that are based in rhetorical pseudo realities tend to fall apart when people cotton on to the idea that their language is the trick that they're using linguistic manipulation and other uh, bullying tactics to do it so that you can then be vigilant against those and watch for the woke words, watch for the tactics as well, just to add something here. And then to simply, in many cases, simply just say, no, we're not going to do that. At which point you then are going to have to deal with the woke tantrum that's going to follow uh, one way or another. And ultimately what people will find is that the hardcore devotees, the actual woke end up having to be removed from institutional settings and especially institutional power because they won't ever leave it alone. They are always doing advances and trying to make incursions. He then develops a uh, long section, uh, another, you know, 10, 11 pages. This whole book is, is pretty short. Um, I guess these are the page numbers. No, I'm sorry. Okay. It's uh, this is very, this is the, the bulk of the book, by the way, it's chapter three is half of the book. Uh, I had it confused. Sorry. Um, 
he goes into a general counter woke craft strategy. He gives some very practical tips. I'll just kind of read off of the table of contents to give you a taste. If you see something, say something, which is funny because it's an inversion of a woke policy. Uh, you should always remain suspicious and skeptical. I would urge not to become paranoid. Uh, this is where Michael Malice advises to take the red pill, but don't take two red pills or don't take lots of red pills. You take red pills on different subjects, but don't just become a paranoid lunatic. But you do have to remain suspicious and skeptical if they're always making advances and they always have an agenda, and they do, which is to center wokeness at the uh, institutional level. That is the agenda. What is their agenda? It is to make the purpose of the institution to promulgate wokeness. That's it. That's If you can't understand that, you have to get your head around it. What about the science? They don't care about the science. It is to make everything serve theory because it is a totalizing ideology. Everything must serve theory. So it is to turn the department, the college, the university, the institution, the church, the seminary, whatever it happens to be, into a woke organ. And you must remain suspicious and skeptical. You must give as little benefit of the doubt as possible, believe it or not. Uh, he recommends always have an alternative to propose. They're going to make an advance. When you say no, you better have another option. One of the most in, in insidious and I think hilarious examples of this that I've heard of, I think it was in, in I think it was in Belgium, but I don't remember, is that they proposed, you know, somebody came in, these consultants came into a school board or a education ministry or something and proposed, they said, well, you know, our education is too Eurocentric. We need to have views outside of Europe. And immediately, rather than somebody saying no, somebody did a very subversive thing, immediately somebody who's hip to what's going on and New Discourses fan raised his hand and said, I think you're right. I think we do need to be less Eurocentric. I think we need to immediately, given what's happened in the past century, we need to focus, we need to have entire units on the, the the tragedy of communism, the failure of communism, especially Chinese communism and Maoism, which is barely in the curriculum at all right now. And this already generated so much energy once he suggested it that the entire, uh, the, the woke consultants ended up having to sign on to be the ones who organized a literal anti-communist education program. When their goal was, of course, to do the opposite. Uh, but you always have to have some alternative to propose. Uh, he, and very, very important because of the woke, um, the, the reverse Martin Bailey Trojan horse thing. He says, never let them add their words. Um, never let them add their words. Their words are activist tools. That's like letting them, if it was in a physical warfare situation, that would be like letting them come in or near your base and to put IUDs under the ground. That's how their words work. Um, IUDs, IEDs, IUDs are something different. That's funny. Uh, not intrauterine devices, not birth control, uh, whatever IED stands for, the homemade landmines, um, explosive devices, the ED, but I don't remember what the I stands for. So it would be like, uh, that's hilarious that I did that. Um, it would be like letting people come in and put landmines in your, in your base. Don't let them add their words. And I, I mean this dead seriously. I don't think he's quite as uh, as forward with the, with the uh, imagery there, but I do mean that. Woke crossover words have to be analyzed very, very carefully. When they ask to add them, they should just be denied. And if they do make it in, they have to be very clear, very narrow, very not woke definitions that are, are agreed before they're allowed to be in there at all because their weapons are words. They work with whether you want to call it like Mike Nana does, discourse engineering, uh, whether you want to call it discursive warfare as a form of political warfare. Words are their weapons. So when you let them add their words to policy or to procedure or to whatever else um, or to the record, 
you are letting them plant a bomb inside your base. Do not let them add their words. Now, speaking of bombs, from fans of New Discourses will recognize, here's blatantly where is James Lindsay's contribution to this so far. Uh, the next section is, or subsection is stealing the Mott and bombing the Bailey, which is what I recommend. If you're going to deal with a Mott and Bailey incursion, and this requires quite a bit of um, front-end loading, you have to know what you're talking about. You have to know both sides of the argument quite well. You want to, when they have their Mott and Bailey little rhetorical trick, you want to be able to, um, I did a whole podcast with this called Stealing the Mott, Steal the Mott and Bomb the Bailey, or maybe it's just called Stealing the Mott, but the argument is you must steal the Mott and bomb the Bailey. What you're going to do is you're going to find their it's just argument, like it's just teaching honest history, and you want to be able to make that argument better. Yeah, we want to teach history the way it really is. This is what that looks like, blah, 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 and then you have to bomb the Bailey, which is their activist attempt. This is, on the other hand, what you're actually proposing and what it actually entails and why it's not going to work. Um, you know, this kind of thing has been implemented in other departments or in other schools, and these were the negative results. It's very easy, in fact, to find school systems that implemented equity programs that not only did they bring down the achievement everywhere, they bring down the achievement specifically and most for uh, the black students or brown students or gay students or whatever. Countless examples I've had relayed to me personally from diversity training and racial sensitivity or identity sensitivity training that's taken place in workplaces where they actually end up humiliating say a gay person who has to listen to all their employee all their fellow coworkers tell them how I've always hated gay people and then start asking them very impertinent questions about sex all the time in the name of sensitivity. So you have to be able to take that on and bomb the Bailey. So you have to know what their activist agenda is and why it's a disaster and, and examples of why it's a disaster to really bomb it well. Um co-opting woke advances, I think I already gave the key example of that uh with the uh two Eurocentric education that now needs to be turned. Okay, two Eurocentric, let's focus on Chinese communism and see what that did to the world. Co-opt their advances and turn them around. He recommends, uh, Pincourt recommends going up as high on the chain as you can. Don't fight with the little, with the little foot soldier that you're dealing with in your meeting. Go up the chain, go to the dean, whatever it happens to be, go up to the HR manager, whatever it is. Uh, and then he says to make sure to vote. Um, a lot of times what you're seeing, and I don't know exactly uh, what it would be in any particular setting in the university. But what you're seeing in a lot of cases is a very small number of activists, sometimes as few as five, are pushing around entire school boards. And all it takes really is people, they're, they're depending on the idea that most people won't bother to participate and show up. This I know was a problem at Evergreen that one of the things that uh, Brett Weinstein did that, that made them so mad at him was that he showed up to all the faculty meetings and most faculty members don't. He kept an eye on them and he made sure to vote. Uh, you can get a lot done if you only have, if you have a committee of a few, if only a few people are showing up, I should say, to do the vote at all. Say you have a faculty body and you're not worrying about things like quorum because it's too complicated for faculty or whatever. Um, say you have a faculty body that you know, it was a few hundred strong or whatever, but only in any given meeting that 10 or 12 people show up, that means you only have to get six or seven people to show up to have a majority. So if they can get six or seven woke activists who always show up to show up, they can actually push around entire, entire departments or committees or colleges very easily. But if you show up to vote, the same, every person who shows up, they have to at least match in order to, to fight that back. And the truth is, 
they don't have that many people. Now it's the worst is probably in, in the worst is, is going, the worst that it's going to be is in universities. So they're going to have larger numbers, which means that if you're a woke dissident or if you're even just squeamish about this, you need to show up and vote. Um, next section again, subverting their approach is learning to identify allies. How do you know who the woke people are? What are the characteristics of people that might be allied against the woke how he actually goes into detail about how you can make contact and actually kind of stunning detail about how you can make contact with a fellow colleague and i get asked this question all the time you know i hear it a lot you know in terms of uh children in their their elementary schools would it be here too you don't know who else on your faculty i hear all the time people are alone i hear a guy say well my kid plays with this kid and I'm anti-woke and want to fight it in the school, but I don't know if his dad is. But I know that if I tell him that I'm against woke and he's for woke, that he's going to turn me in and my kid's going to get, you know, abused at school. This is this is kind of Maoist tactics. You can't trust anybody. So he actually, uh, Charles goes through in this book and gives you some strategies about how you can, uh, you can identify who you might meet with to get the sense that they might be uh, co-belligerent with you against this woke and then how you can actually meet them and how you can arrange the meeting and how you can bridge the gap. Uh, you know, it's dicey, but um, how to do it, how to make contact with potential allies against the woke. And then the next whole section outlines, how do we get from making contact to working together to counter woke craft? Um, and then which involves educating because it's crucial to this for the discernment and for the uh, stealing, mob bombing, Bailey tactics and things. How do you you can inform them about the critical social justice perspective? You can see the importation of the assumption, which I assume he had independently, that a lot of so this, this would also include then waking up woke latent woke dissidents who are not fully woke. If you inform them on what the critical social justice thing is about or the woke movement is about, then you can actually activate them to, to help you in this cause. And uh, then he goes into some detail about how you can actually work together in ways that are very effective in the institutional setting that not without putting yourselves at risk. Um, it's very uh, well laid out and very strategic, uh, but it of course starts with informing people about the perspective, which Again and again, people just don't realize how dangerous this is. The next section elaborates on this by going into coordinating with other allies, with allies in order to counter Wokecraft. So now that you've found friends, now that you've connected with them, now that you've activated them, how do you do it? What do you do? Recruiting more allies. There is strength in numbers here. And in fact, uh, this was again a Michael Malice point that he made when I talked to him on his podcast. The first time I went on, I've been on twice for those keeping score at home. Uh, he said that everybody thinks, you know, oh, well, they have five or 10% of the population. They, people think they have, like, they try to inflate it to make it look like they have half the population or a majority. And in fact, they may have, say, 5% of the population or 10% of the population as, as part of their movement. He says, everybody thinks, oh my gosh, we have to get, you know, they perceive that it's half. So we have to get half on our side in order to fight back. And he says, no, that's not true. Most people aren't even engaged. They have maybe 5%. So we just have to get six. And so recruiting other allies and getting strength in numbers, it, you know, it's a very helpful thing. You want to at least start to get parity in terms of anti-woke or counter-woke, I should say, not anti-woke, counter-woke activists. You want to at least get numerical parity 
with woke activists. And I say activists here in both cases very, very particularly. What I mean is that they're people who are willing to show up to the meetings. They're willing to vote. They're willing to take action. They're willing to pay attention. They're willing to take on the extra work. He also, in this book, by the way, points out that at least in the, the university bureaucratic structure, that you're expected to do service to the university. So some of this stuff can double up on your other work responsibilities. And you're not taking on something that you wouldn't. You're just reprioritizing work that you are expected to do. Um, he points out strategies for identifying sites for counter woke craft intervention, uh, then understanding the terrain that you're getting into, uh, how you prioritize your, your counter woke interventions. I don't want to say, I'm trying to get away from saying anti woke, and as a matter of fact, saying counter woke, because this is what we need to do is counter wokeness, and, and we should be against it as well, but we need to counter wokeness where we enc- uh, encounter it. You know, he also, goes into strategies to make sure that you're getting enough people who are dissident to wokeness to show up to things. Um, I gave this example a long time ago when Carlin Borsenko got a bunch of activists involved to try to do something in the state of New Hampshire with its state legislature. And I, re- I remember being very grateful to her at the time because if she ha- she literally coordinated making sure, hey, do you want to speak? This is the time. This is the link. Are you going to be pinged me on social media to remember to show up, you know, kind of somebody organized. And if you don't want to take it on directly, by the way, here's another job organizing people, organizing the resistance. That's a job in and of itself. So ensuring dissident representation and then limiting representation of the woke participants. So actually, you know, actually engaging in some counter woke craft here, there, um, the whole next section, again, a very beautiful one, a longer one, or no, sorry, the tighter one, uh, uh, is sowing doubt about the critical social justice perspective. How do you disarm situations? It gets into some kind of specifics. What is equality of opportunity? What's equality of outcome? Uh, why is equity too simplistic? Uh, how do you understand that, in fact, the critical social justice or woke perspective is based in discrimination? It's discriminatory. How do you understand that inclusion and exclusion are a flipped over concept? What does its historical track record look like? You know, these kinds of things. The idea that two wrongs don't make a right, that they operate from the antithesis of the golden rule. Um, he has a section, a subsection about restricting candidate pools, risks lowering standards. You know, all of these things that the woke poison. Uh, so restricting candidate pools by favoring diversity. So now only diverse enough candidates will be um, considered for hiring or whatever uh, grad positions, uh, tenure. When you restrict the candidate pool, that risks lowering standards because you have fewer people to pick and you have to do something. So you're going to lower standards. It's very important for people who want to counter Wokecraft to understand the way that ways that Wokecraft creates a failing situation so that they can bring this in to sow doubt about the perspective because the perspective comes in with such confidence that it's absolutely right and bullies people so effectively into believing that there must be something wrong with them. They don't understand it. Maybe they're crazy. Maybe it's not really going on like they think they see it that they're somehow complicit in some evil, they have white complicity or something, um, or that they're secretly racist or they're upholding white supremacy inadvertently. This is like the whole the whole of Robin D'Angelo's work that you actually have to, that they're so effective at that, that you actually have to be able to so doubt that this perspective is actually good. I had a podcast I did here on New Discourses fairly recently where I talked about the book, Is Everyone Really Equal? And 
I went into this kind of very specifically, what's the definition of critical social justice? And the idea that I wanted to convey there, I don't, I know very few liberals listen to me now unless they hate listen, uh, and definitely leftists only hate listen, but any liberal people out there, I wanted to convince them that maybe they do very much care about social justice, but what's actually happening is something very specific, very different and very bad which is, as Isaac Gotsman calls it, uh, he's a critical education theorist, he calls it critical Marxism. That's what he calls this. Critical social justice, D'Angelo and Aslam Sensoy and uh, Robin D'Angelo point out, and is everyone really equal? Uh, they say critical social justice differs from the true commitments of social justice. They say some activists use the term social justice to try to reclaim its true commitments, but they mean something very specific rooted in the critical theory school, blah, blah, blah. And the question then is, why is there this one very narrow, very divisive, very Marxian approach? Why is that to be considered the only possible way? Why is Antifa able to convince people that it's the only possible way to be against fascism? You know, that kind of stuff. So you need to be able to sow doubt in in that. Um, and this is the kind of thing that that he's laying out in this section. It's very, very good, very important. Uh, so, you know, out of restricting candidate pools, risks lowering standards, he goes into the runs of risk of perpetuating discrimination. The woke ideology does this, that it undermines the self-confidence of qualified, diverse candidates. This is actually very important. Um, if you are a diversity hire and you have a reason to suspect that you might be a diversity hire, or even if you're not one, if you have a good reason to suspect that you're a diversity hire, your confidence in your own work goes down. You know, you, you suspect, I should say, or in some cases you'll know you weren't hired to, for your, for your qualifications, you were hired because somebody who looks like you had to be there. Now, this was widely argued correctly when California instituted a policy for its corporate boards that there had to be at least one woman. Well, if there was only one woman, or even if there are two, which one of, is one of you going to suspect that you were just hired because they needed a woman as a the token woman? This is, they actually complain about this endlessly in the woke literature. They call it tokenizing. Um, well, the, the woke approach actually encourages tokenizing in practice while it decries it. So it's in a sense speaking out of both sides of its mouth. So um, the undermining of the self-confidence of qualified diverse candidates and diverses and scare quotes here is, I think, very important to understand that this is really poisonous. The woke ideology, this whole su subsection section or 3.6 is about how poisonous the woke ideology actually is so that you can inform people and to, again, get woke dissidents informed to fight back and latent dis dissidents aware of the need to become dissident, full out woke dissidents and fight back uh, and to do so effectively. He also points out that penalizes uh, wokeness penalizes the individual for group membership. Everything comes down to group membership, this group thinking, uh, therefore sins of the people who happen to look like me as uh, analyzed through crackpot conspiracy theories and Marxian theory, as I would put it. Uh, he says also, you know, for the scientists out there conveying the idea that critical social justice and wokeness are anti-real, anti-science and anti-scientific actually can go a long way to shake up scientists. I actually got into, I, there were, there were rumblings around things and I could tell the story in various levels of, of detail and going for, far enough back. But I have told the story in the past when I read the feminist glaciology paper, science was so important and so sacred to me as a concept. The idea that that feminist glaciology paper could appear in the peer reviewed literature at all as a serious thing in any discipline literally shut me down for three days. And then I, you know, very much so I already believed that it was a problem. Uh, 
uh, what's going on here, but it took my conviction that this is a problem to a whole new level. And that's because my science background and the veneration of science as science should be uh, was seriously upset by the fact that the woke ideology is anti-real, anti-science, and anti-scientific. Uh, and then he actually, in the, the last part of this, he actually gives some advice on how to go about, how, not here are the ways that the wokeness is a problem. How do you use these things to go about sowing doubt? So it's very, um, very useful for that. Now, the rest of the book gets a bit more technical. Uh, in terms of the counter craft strategies. So it increases in technical specificity. Uh, section 3.7 is about how to formalize meetings. Again, earlier in the book, when he de- details the strategies of WokeCraft, one of those is to make meetings more casual, to make the liberal decision-making process more ambiguous and subjective. And so he argues the opposite and gives a number of very important points about if you want to fight back against this, that you need to formalize meetings, like a very formal structure that everybody knows in advance and everybody has to play by, so-called preset rules of engagement. The woke will fight these things like crazy because they want that ambiguity as much as possible so that they can do the things that they do. So the resolution nine thing from the Southern Baptist Convention becomes pertinent. If they had had very, they said, oh, well, we have 13, you know, we have however many hours at the numbers being 13 and nothing divides. Well, well, let's pretend that the, it was a 13 hour meeting. It wasn't, but we'll pretend just for the simplicity of the math. Okay. We have a 13 hour meeting. I guess we could do half of 13, which is six and a half. We have a six and a half hour meeting. So we're going to get 30 minutes for number one, 30 minutes for number two, 30 minutes for number three, 30 minutes for number four until we're going to spend 30 minutes on each. And what we're going to do is at, you know, the, we're going to introduce the thing that's five minutes or thereabouts, 20 minutes of discussion and commentary, five minutes to call the vote and, you know, take whatever breather space there is before the next one. And then that's, so we're going to get a very formal structure. Now, resolution two, we're going to introduce it over five minutes, discussion and questions for 20 minutes, vote and decide for five minutes and blah, 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 blah. And then there would be no, oh my gosh, we ran out of time right at the end of resolution eight, right before the most controversial one, let's cram them all into a eight, or sorry, nine, 10, 11, 12, and 13 into a single block and vote on them with no discussion. If you formalize the meeting, they can't do that. So he talks about the various strategies that you can use to formalize, which of course dips into the strategies that they use to kind of control that playing field. So, you know, he recommends volunteer to chair the meetings. You, If you chair the meeting, you get to control the formal level of formalization of the meeting. Uh, ensure voting procedures are in place. It's not just going to be some ambiguous, like, oh, I guess we're going to raise our hand. No, there's procedures. Uh, ensure that there's a meeting agenda. Establish the agenda beforehand. Assign times to agenda items. That's what I just kind of outlined with what could have been in a uh, prepared Southern Baptist convention. Um, and if, again, volunteer to chair the meeting. Well, if the activists who want to bring this crap in chair the meeting, they can make sure that it's informal enough to where, whoops, time ran out. So that's why you want to volunteer to chair. Stick to the agenda. So when the, you know, the timer goes off, we now have to call discussion to a close. Uh, further comments can be submitted in writing later, blah, 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 whatever policies, procedures. And, you know, now we call it to a, a vote. And I gave an example where it's 30, 30, 30, 30, 30. If you think some of them are going to be more controversial, you could actually expand or contract the amount of time 
given to any of these. If it's very procedural, you don't need the full discussion time. Perhaps you might give it 10 minutes instead of 30. Um, whereas if it's more controversial, you might give it 45 instead of 30 or 50 instead of 30 or something like that. So, you, but if you control the meeting, you can do that. And again, nothing should be left up to ambiguity or left in ambiguity and left up to the, to, to the organic flow of the situation to decide. Let me just kind of run over those again. Ensure voting procedures are in place. Ensure there is an agenda. Establish the agenda beforehand. Assign times to agenda items. Stick to the agenda. Close, decide, or table. Identify relevant documents in the agenda and record and circulate minutes so that nothing's left to, to ambiguity and chance. It sucks that we have to be this formal, but formality, formal procedures actually block out the woke. That's why they're always trying to deconstruct them. That's always why in cynical theories we talk about they're always trying to blur the boundaries. That's why the woman in the equity task force in Washington wanted to uh, treat it like South Africa and to problematize the whole structure of an administrative meeting at the state level in Washington for having agenda items. That's what the guy said in that meeting. That I know that keeping an agenda is white supremacy coming out of my mouth. That's what he said, or very close to that. So you have to do basically the opposite of all of that. And you have to be very disciplined. And the, uh, whoever takes over these meetings needs to be very disciplined. And you take over as many of these kind of agendas and meetings as possible and push for this very formal uh, approach. Because if you don't, they're going to use the wiggle room. I wanted to, I mean, I've given a podcast about this too, I think on only subs, but it's like I watched the crocodile hunter when I was a kid or a teenager at one point, And he was talking about how to grab a crocodile. I think it was in my twenties. Steve Irwin was talking about it. And, uh, he said that you can leave no wiggle room What you have like six guys or eight guys or 10 guys or whatever, depending on the, the crocodile, jump on it at once and grab it. And like somebody's putting a rope around its mouth so it can't bite anybody and, you know, different things that they do. He said, if you leave even the small, like your whole, he was talking about how your whole body has to be pressed up against the crocodile. And if it's not, you leave the slightest gap. That gap is where you're going to get hit with it, you know, and you're going to get hurt or you're going to get thrown off. But if you give no gap, you can actually hug and hold on and ride the bucking angry crocodile. And this is sort of the deal. You can give no wiggle room. The woke or you, like a crocodile, are using the wiggle room to uh, pull things off in their agenda. The more formal and straightforward and pre-agreed upon where everybody has to just deal. This is what we're going to do. Everybody has to deal. And if it doesn't work for the next one, we'll adjust, but it will also be put forth in writing very clearly. This, by the way, is also the legal reasoning. When you read uh, critical race theory and introduction in the first paragraph, yeah, the end of the first paragraph, it says critical race theory calls into question the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, Enlightenment rationalism and the neutral principles of constitutional law. This is legal reasoning. Um, courtrooms have very formal procedures. Meeting structures often have very formal rules uh, that, that that have to be adhered to. When you have all this stuff laid out very clearly in advance, it makes it very difficult for subjective things to make their way in. And so it's a very, very important point, a very important section, even though it's a little dry and technical. But if you're in a bureaucratic environment and you want to try to fight the woke, you have to understand how to formalize meetings. Um, I'll just skip ahead for the moment. I'll skip section 3.8 to mention the rest of this whole book. 3.9, 3.10, and 3.11 are all about secret ballot voting. So there's secret ballot voting. This is 3.9 to counter woke craft. 
So why is this important? Why do you need secret ballots? Why is, why are we not just raising our hand? Because verbal val- ballots are susceptible to social pressure and they're using, again, psychological, ep- epistemological and moral pressure, social pressure to sway votes, to pre- present the uh, illusion of um, either your badness or whatever, anybody who goes against them's badness or of greater support than they actually have or whatever. Well, secret ballots, if done right, actually ruin that. You can tell your opinion in secret without anybody knowing it was you. Um, you know, the, the anonymity there in the, in the vote is very important and very actually poisonous to a minority takeover movement. And that's clearly important to understand. So section 3.9 is secret ballot voting to counter woke craft, how to do it. Why is it important? Section 3.10 is making sure the secret ballot votes are transparent, free and fair. What do voting protocols look like? How do you trigger a vote and when? Who are eligible voters? Uh, how do you organize a vote? And then chapter the last section is actually how to win the vote. Uh, and then we wrap up the book with a conclusion. But the one I skipped is section 3.8, strategies to facilitate dissent from woke craft. And he points out the necessity of anonymity uh, because of the moral bullying and the epistemological bullying and the psychological bullying that take place and the kind of insidious subversive nature. Uh, so this is this book, um, I think is going to be an indispensable guide for people in practical settings who want to challenge this. Uh, it's by my relatively new friend, Charles Pincourt. He graciously included me on the cover with James Lindsay, it says. Uh, and I think that this book is the, like I said, the best thing in print right now for understanding not fully the woke ideology. It's sufficient on detailing in an accessible, quick reading way. What is woke ideology? How does it work? Um, but more importantly, uh, the woke craft, the, their actual strategic tactics, I think it's the best available guide in print for that. And then actually, you know, half of the book is literally practical advice, some of it quite technical, like the voting stuff and meeting stuff that you can employ to fight back. So I'm proud to have been involved in this project. I'm proud to be hosting it or publishing it through a New Discourses imprint, our first book, maybe of many, maybe of a few. Um for those wondering, because you know I'm writing a book about critical race theory, this is not that book. I will print or publish that from New Discourses as well. That's going to be called Race Marxism. It's several times longer than this book. It's specifically about critical race theory. That book is not finished yet. That's not this book. That book is coming, uh, just to let you know what else is coming. But I really want to encourage you to... Uh, to pick up this book, it's a short read. It's easy to go through. If you work in or work or associate with any any situation where you might have any use for bureaucracy and, and administrative settings, the university and beyond, as the title goes, you definitely want to pick this up or get it for somebody who is. Um, universities centrally, school boards are going to be big. Uh, corporate sector is is also significant it's going to extend into that anything government agencies so the book again just you should go out and pick it up like i said it should be available by the time we drop this podcast uh the book is titled counter woke craft a field manual for combating the woke in the university and beyond it is authored by charles pincourt with james lindsay not by James Lindsay. So, you know, also if you're listening to this and you're interested, you know, feel free to reach out. We can try to put you in contact with Charles uh, Pincourt to talk about his book. Um, 
it, I should not be contacted as the authority on this book. This is his argument. It's his book. Um, I think it's brilliant. I think it's valuable and important, but it's certainly, these are not there. Well, many of the things are derived from ideas that I've put out in the world. This is Charles's way of thinking about these problems. This is Charles's way of addressing these problems. And again, I think it's very, very valuable contribution to what's going on. So I strongly encourage you to go check it out and pick it up. Um, wow. I didn't realize I'd gone almost two hours, uh, but this is counter woke craft. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, consider picking it up and uh, supporting both, you know, the fight to save Western civilization, but also new discourses by uh, supporting our first um, published book. <laughs>